It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hartman is in the business of big ideas. Of big Jewish ideas. And we're pretty good at it. There are missing voices in these conversations. We have enough humility to know that we don't have all of the good ideas out in the world. That is why we've launched a Creators Challenge. A challenge to creators ages 18 to 25 who think they have a new original way of talking about big concepts and big ideas that matter to American Jews. Whether it's peoplehood, liberal Zionism, Jewish identity, or civic engagement. If you have a fresh take on those big ideas, then come talk to us. If you have a great idea for a podcast, TikTok series, or YouTube show, we want to hear about it. Because what we can do for you is we are able to take it all the way. We have access to amazing scholars, professional digital production, and a marketing team who will partner with you. Give you the technical expertise you need, help with video, help with audio. And then also help you think through the concept. What is a way to take a raw idea and to make it into something really great? Submit your idea at shalomhartman.org forward slash creator challenge before March 14th, 2022. We can't wait to work with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, and we're recording on Sunday, February 27th, 2022. Our hearts are in the East, as the old Jewish saying goes. There's a war in Eastern Europe, and it's all that any of us can think about. I mean, imagine this, that even in this American moment during the most profound partisan divide in America in nearly a century, even the appointment of a new Supreme Court justice can't compete for being the main headline in any news coverage. Over the weekend, we've been watching the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, a brazen and dangerous power play, and in turn, Ukraine's and its Jewish president's courageous defense of its cities and its people. No surprise that it's hard to think about anything else right now. You know, our show, Identity Crisis, is not a political or military analysis show. You don't tune in here for detailed discussion of global foreign policy, and I'd never position myself as someone whose amateur opinions on such subjects was worth broadcasting. We, this show, is interested in the Jewish communal conversation, especially as it intersects the news of the day, with the goal that when we look for those angles and intersections, we don't just narcissistically or parochially make big stories about us and our concerns. In other words, what I want to ask today in this show is for us as Jewish leaders, when we see major issues like this materializing in the world, we need to ask ourselves, what is our piece of the work? For North American Jews, there are three easy points of entry into the significant story, why it matters and why it matters to us, in addition to simply being part of eroding democratic norms in the West in which we live. Well, First, there's the reality that many of us come from and identify with the places we are seeing as the sites of this war on the news, whether in our distant past or our more recent past. Over Shabbat, I spoke with my father about our family heritage. I've said on this show before that I'm unusual in that all four of my grandparents were born in America, and I feel very distant from their immigrant stories. 
But yes, my paternal grandmother came from Lvov, sometimes in its history called Lemberg, and my paternal grandfather claimed to have come from somewhere near Chernobyl. Many of us Ashkenazi Jews trace some of our heritage to places that now constitute parts of Ukraine, and many of us are ambivalent about that in the sense that our ancestors would certainly never have thought of themselves as Ukrainian. And then, whether or not there are actual ancestors, there are also our Jewish forebears. Rabbanit Leasarna put out a call online before Shabbat that we teach of the Torah produced in Ukraine by the many learned masters from that part of the world. Meantime, there's a significant minority in our Jewish community that sees Ukraine not as a point of origin in their distant past, but the place from which they themselves came, part of the growing segment of our community that we sometimes refer to as Russian-speaking Jews or Jews of the former Soviet Union. For them, these news stories are of a totally different emotional valence entirely. There's a second story here, which is about what it means for us as Jews to watch an imperial war of conquest materialize again in Europe not 80 years after the end of the last one, that still continues to create and transmit real and epigenetic trauma in our Jewish souls. And then the third story is that there are just a lot of Jews living in Ukraine, for which Ukraine is not mythos or memory, but home. I couldn't quite figure out the numbers of how many Jews are in what is now called Ukraine because Jews are notoriously difficult to count, but let's assume somewhere between 100 and 200,000 Jews making Ukraine home to one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. And it's a diverse Jewish community, a complicated Jewish community. In my shul on Shabbat, our rabbi, Katie Greenberg, mentioned that there are actually four synagogues in Ukraine that identify with the Masorti movement, the international signifier for conservative Judaism. That surprised me. Ukrainian Jews represent the denominational spectrum, and they are vulnerable right now. Many of us are watching videos and stories of Jews shutting down synagogues and running for the border, we recognize that story from our past. We mourn it in our present. There's a fourth other super complicated story that we're not going to get into today about Israel, the nature of its response right now, the ways in which it is ambivalently responding to this moment because of the presence of Russian troops on its northern border and the question of its relationship to the United States, to Russia, and to Ukraine. I think that will be a little bit beyond our conversation today. My guests to help me unpack this to whom I'm really grateful for the ways that they are showing up here last minute and with a lot of other urgent things to work on, are Roman Schmelinson, who is the executive director of COJECO, the Council of Jewish Emigre Community Organizations, which is the central coordinating body of the Russian-speaking Jewish community in New York, and Nancy Kaufman, who's the principal of a consulting firm on Jewish communal strategy and previously served as the executive director of the JCRC in Boston, as well as National Council of Jewish Women, and spent many years over many trips building a relationship between the Boston Jewish community and the Jewish community in Dnipro, what is now called Dnipro. And I'm grateful to both of you for being here. Roman, let me start with you. Uh, it would be helpful for me and for our listeners to give us a state of mind of your constituents. You represent about 30 organizations in the New York area who represent Jewish communities from the former Soviet Union, some Ukrainian, some not. Maybe give us a little bit of a window into what people are simply feeling right now that you see from your position of leadership. Yehuda, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, indeed, these are strange and puzzling times. And uh, if I had to characterize how the community feels, the words would be at a loss. Uh, we are at a loss for words. We are at a loss for ways to explain it. We are at a loss to understand how to respond. 
we are at a loss uh, to explain to our children what it means to them, mostly American Jewish children. Uh, there's only one thing that's very clear. Blood is being spilled in our former homeland and the images are terrible. The phone calls to our friends and family members are absolutely heart-wrenching. There's a sense of helplessness. There's also a sense of frustration. Many of us left many years ago and told our families to do so as well. And they chose to stay and build their lives and Jewish lives in Ukraine or in the former Soviet Union. So there's a lot of, I told you so, and why didn't you listen to me going on? At the same time, there's a frustration with Russia and Ukraine. Many of us left the country when it was still part of the former Soviet Union. And we never identified, frankly, with either Russians or Ukrainians. In this former Soviet Union, being Jewish was an ethnic identity. So our friends and our neighbors and our classmates were Ukrainians, Russians, Georgians, Poles, Crimean Tatars, and we were the Jews. So we never, frankly, identified with one side or another side. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's very hard to explain to our children who ask us, well, are we Russian or are we Ukrainian? If my daughter asks me, you know, mom is from Kiev, so she's Ukrainian, but you were born in Russia, so you are Russian. So are your countries fighting? And we're saying, you know, we are, two, we are really two Ashkenazi Jews whom fate threw into former Soviet Union and our families ended up there. And we had some good moments. We had some wonderful Russian and Ukrainian friends with whom we are still in touch. And we deeply hurt for them at this time. Uh, but ultimately, we are Jews who see our future and our present, you know, uh, with the American Jewish community, with the state of Israel. And uh, it's, you know, it's rather hard to explain. At the same time, these are places that we see on TV uh, and on the internet. The, you know, my wife says, hey, that, that's, that's my school on fire, you know, or, or things like that. Uh, so whether you identify or not, it's very hard to separate yourself emotionally. And many of us don't want to, frankly. You know? This is part of who we are. This enriches who we are, builds our identity, and uh, it's very scary. There was a tremendous uh, short essay which gets at some of what I think you're describing by Jake Marmer yep. uh, on Tablet, um, who said, uh, watched his resistance to some of his friends on social media changing their profiles to include the blue and yellow Ukrainian flag. And he says, I couldn't do that. The Ukrainian flag as such reminds me of Ukrainian nationalism, which reminds me of why I left He's not and wrong. why so many other Jews left, right? So, and, and I'll just finish his paragraph. He says, the Ukrainian brand of nationalism had always come with a side dish of anti-Semitism. It's not that I don't stand with Ukraine. I do. And if not entirely with, then maybe just a little diagonally. I think that's what numerous Jewish immigrants from Ukraine all over the world are feeling right now, the bitter aftertaste of the motherland that systematically persecuted us and the deep, heartbreaking concern for our numerous friends, relatives, and neighbors who stayed. So it sounds a little bit like the way you're describing is captured in that kind of ambivalence. Very much so. You will always hear some people in our community saying that the only flag you will see next to my profile picture on social media is the flag of the United States of America because I deeply love and respect this country and the flag of the state of Israel because this is my spiritual and ancestral homeland. 
So you will not see any other flag on my profile picture. I happen to yeah. change mine to Ukrainian flag uh, for very different reasons. Uh, got a little bit of a pushback from my uh, American and Russian-speaking Ukrainian you know, Jewish friends, and uh, I'm happy to explain why I did that. Yeah. So Nancy, uh, I know that when you were at JCRC and probably since then, made a lot of trips to Ukraine, built relationships with those Jewish communities. I've seen you reflecting on social media quite poignantly about what it means to watch this story unfold. Maybe tell us a little bit about why Ukraine and some of its Jewish communities became such an important part of your leadership and kind of what you're reflecting on back as you're watching this story unfold. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Yehuda. And nice to be with you, Roman. Uh, this is deeply personal and painful on many levels. And Roman, you've touched on a couple that I want to touch on as well. Um, many of us were involved in the Soviet Jewry movement. Many of us did everything we could to get Jews out. And then, lo and behold, the Soviet Union falls and collapses. And Roman, like you said, many people said, okay, don't be deceived, we should get out. And I think that's where some of the pain comes in. Because some of us, uh, and I for one in Boston, felt like, okay, there's people trying to rebuild Jewish life in the former Soviet Union for the first time in a generation. And isn't it our responsibility to partner and help build a vibrant community. We in Boston picked Dnipro Petros, now Dnipro, much easier to say, for some interesting reasons. Now Dnipro Petros, no one had ever heard of. It was a closed city before the breakup of the Soviet Union. On the list of JDC communities who were getting assistance, uh, it was number 26. However, it had the fourth largest Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. So there was this disconnect and those of us who are advocates felt like, whoa, we wanna dive in and help. We then meet this 24-year-old young charismatic rabbi who had been sent by Schneerson, by the Rebbe. Why? Because the Rebbe's father and grandfather had been the chief rabbi of Dnipro, and he spent uh, from age 7 to 22 there. His father was arrested and tortured and exiled by the Soviets to Kazakhstan, where he died in 1944, while his grandfather was murdered by the Nazis. And so when there was this opportunity, he said, okay, you know, it's time for us now to go back and rebuild. So that young, at that time, 24-year-old rabbi, Shmuel Kamenetsky, he has a vision that he is going to rebuild Jewish life. And I remember in 1992, him taking me to a rundown munitions factory. And in those early days, it was still very Soviet and very stark. Uh, and he said, I'm going to turn this into a beautiful synagogue. And we all kind of rolled our eyes and we said, sure, sure, right. I went to the dedication of that synagogue 10 years later when Kuchma, wearing a kippah, came to dedicate the synagogue. It was like an out-of-body experience. So, yes, um, the land of my grandfather, who was born in Kiev, as you said, I, I was always told he was born in Russia, but then I realized he was born in Ukraine, um, I have to tell you that when I first went there, I felt a similar feeling to how I do when I go to Israel. You know, I love Israel. I've been there, you know, dozens and dozens of times. I felt like there was a karmic connection that, yes, my ancestors had been there. And I saw and I met people who had not known what Judaism was for over a generation, who lived through the Stalin area. They lived through World War II. They weren't were afraid to practice your Judaism, but the kids remembered the piece of matzah that their grandmother used to take out of her drawer at a certain time of year around April. And then I realized we as a Jewish community, one thing we know how to do is build community. That's what we do, right? That's what we've done all over the world. 
So slowly, slowly, we watched and we partnered with the community in Dnipropetrovsk. And yes, the synagogue, a day school with 400 kids in it, a home for the elderly, a Jewish big brother, big sister program. And you go on down the list, a Jewish community center, the list of the things we do as Jews to build community. And it was all rolling out and it was, you know, turning into a beautiful city. So we went from the hotel in Yippipetrosk, which the little old lady sat in the hallway and there were no lights handing out the keys to the Hotel Ukraine on Karl Marx Boulevard. I mean, it was just magnificent uh, what had happened there. And I was proud to be part of it. So I sit now and I watch what's happening. And I'm, first of all, as everyone, in total shock that Putin could be allowed. And I have some political things to say about why mm -hmm. the world has not done more sooner. Uh, and I'd say that in a nonpartisan way, and I'll, you know, I'll be as critical as Obama not responding to Crimea as I will of Trump calling him an evil genius. You know, I, I, I am really sick. I think the good news that I feel now is that what he has managed to do is not only unite Ukraine, unbelievably so, create uh, Zelensky as a, an amazing leader and unite NATO in, in the European community. But it is painful because there were many people early on in this effort, donors in Boston, you know, we would take trips, we would take missions, we would take small groups and large groups to visit. And by the way, people rolled up their sleeves. You know, the people who worked on disabilities in Boston worked on a program for disabled kids in Ukraine. People worked on microenterprise in Boston, worked on microenterprise for women in Ukraine. I mean, you go down the list of all the organizations. But there were those who said what you just said, Roman, which is they should get out. They'll never, never be totally welcome in that part of the world. They should get out. And we said, no, if people want to choose to stay and live and build their life, we should support them. And so fast forward, Nenipipatras now has one of the largest complexes, community centers, hotel, kosher, uh, Holocaust museum of anywhere in Europe. I mean, it, yeah. it's remarkable and people don't know it. So let's unpack that a little bit because I, it's interesting. A project like Kojeko, which is about community mobilizing in New York, and a project like what you described, Nancy, for the Jewish community in Dnipro are actually in some ways opposite. We can cultivate both the validity, legitimacy, flourishing of Jewish communities that choose to stay wherever they choose to stay. Mm -hmm. And then the other is, how do I rebuild or constitute Jewish community for those who have left? But it's hard to escape, and kind of both of you alluded to this kind of I told you so thing. It's hard to escape that. And it's true, by the way, both by American Jews who believe – you know, through American exceptionalism of the superiority of the American Jewish project by anyone else. And it's true for Zionists. This is a really hard project for the state of Israel. You remember a few years ago when, after the Charlie Hebdo shooting, when Netanyahu effectively said that to Parisian Jews, I told you so, right? So there's this weird thing that I think that it's worth naming because I think it's part of the psychology of continued Jewish life, of how we watch stories like this unfold, and whether our first instinct and response is, how do I help support those who are there versus how do I facilitate the exit for those who I thought should have been leaving before? Nancy, how do you see that? How do you feel it when you watch the news? Uh, very conflicted. Very, very, very conflicted. Uh, if you had asked me that question a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, I would have said Jews have a right to live anywhere. Isn't that what we always say? Jews have a right to live anywhere. We should be able to live in peace with security and democracy anywhere. Jews have been thriving and living in Ukraine for the past 30 years. 
and no one anticipated. And again, this isn't about the Jews, because obviously it's all of Ukraine. So I don't want to make it about the Jews. But, you know, we are a subsection and we can look at the macro and we can look at the micro. Um, you know, Shmuel Kamenetsky is a, has Israeli passport and American, and he considers himself a Ukrainian. He, he said, I, I will be the last Jew to leave here. Um, he plans to s- support his community. To see a synagogue packed to the gills on Shabbat <laughs> with, with people coming and going, to walk with the rabbi through the marketplace in Nippepetrovsk on, on Shabbat, and see kids from his Jewish day school, you know, buying things and just saying, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, you know, welcoming, supporting. And to see the way, quite frankly, from a community relations point of view, that that particular rabbi, who obviously I know the best, interacted and became engaged in local politics with local religious leaders, with other people in the community, did not separate themselves from the community like the old days of Eastern Europe. So there is good reason to understand why they felt comfortable and had developed a thriving community. So I can't say that we were wrong. I don't think we were wrong. I think Putin's wrong. Um, I think that people have a right to live where they want to live, including Jews. And they were having quite a wonderful life. And, and by the way, many of his grandchildren were born in Crown Heights from Brooklyn, some in Israel. Uh, there's, you know, you go back and forth. There's a lot of Israelis in Yippipetrosk or have been. I know the Israelis have called back a lot of people. JDC's there, the Jewish agency's there. Um, you know, they've done everything that they've done in other diaspora communities in the world. So this is hard. This is really yeah. hard. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as a very much a tangent. My family and I were, were traveling last week and we we went to Italy. Uh, it was it was great. And and I when we spent Shabbat in Rome in the synagogue and in one of the kosher restaurants that you can prepay. I think my kids there's something about not America and not Israel that you can understand Jewish peoplehood in a totally different mm-hmm. way. There's something about it. So uh, at at the risk of instrumentalizing these communities, there. This is the, we don't really get diaspora in mm-hmm. America. We don't really get mm-hmm. that sense of Jewish peoplehood of building something that is of a complicated Jewish identity in complicated places. And you're watching these communities struggle right now and flee. There's an unbelievable loss to our understanding of what we really mean when we talk about global Jewry. Uh, Roman, I'd love for you to come in on this also because I'm sure this is for you and also for many of the network communities that you're working with such a complicated question. You know, for many years I thought I was wrong. You know, when we said there is no future for these people as Jews in that part of the world, if they choose to stay and be lost to the Jewish people, fine, that's their choice. We are going to the United States and to Israel and we will rebuild and reconnect with our Jewish heritage. When people started coming later from the former Soviet Union, the ones who experienced strong and vibrant Jewish communities and Jewish learning and Jewish summer camps, they came to the United States. We said, my God, you know, uh, they know more. They are better connected. They understand more. My wife uh, comes from a traditional Jewish home where her father was a refusenik and studied Hebrew in secret, you know, and uh, in the early 90s, they were part of Kiev Jewish community. She spoke fluent Hebrew, she read, she knew things that I had no idea about. And here I was the wise one, you know, who came to the United States and did so to reconnect with the Jewish community. I was nowhere on the same level in terms of Jewish knowledge, in terms of Jewish connection, in terms of Jewish 
community life. So for many years, I thought you know, I, I really was wrong. You know, maybe I even wished that I stayed for five, seven more years and experienced that revival of Jewish life that I frankly missed. I almost felt jealous. At the same time, when I spoke to one of the donors who was very supportive of uh, revival of Jewish life in the former Soviet Union, and we, you know, the question was asked in a group setting, why are you investing in that community if there's no future? And he said, we are investing in people. Wherever Jews are, this is where we are investing. Where they choose to live or where they will end up living is a whole different story. You know, if things go bad, they can go to Israel, they can go to the United States, but they will have something that you cannot take away from them. And that's the sense of Jewish pride, the sense of Jewish community. And I think the Jews who are leaving some of the Ukrainian cities today are leaving as part of the community. They will have a much easier time connecting to the new Jewish communities that they might have to uh, build from scratch or at least connecting with the existing Jewish communities. But I am ready to admit that I was wrong and you know, all that investment was absolutely worth it. And uh, yeah. you know, they are part of the global Jewish community. Of course, and I, and I have to ask, I mean, one of the things that I really think that the organized Jewish community has struggled with for 30 years, Nancy, you were an exemplar on this of like, what does it look like to actually be part of truly absorbing the number of immigrants that came from the former Soviet Union in the early 90s. But widely speaking, the Jewish community really failed, if I can say so. And the reason for the need for the organizations that prompt the creation of a network organization like Kojeko was because of Jews who basically felt underserved by many of the communal infrastructure that, that couldn't fully embrace them for who they were. So I'm just curious, like I was very taken, Roman, by your line, maybe staying five to seven years would have been, I would have liked to have seen that happen. I can imagine that a Jewishness that flourishes in a place where people are born, where you're not learning a new language where you can actually produce a Judaism that is Russian-speaking in Russian contexts, uh, there's something there that forcing a vision of like <laughs> of a Jewishness to reemerge in faraway places is just too much to ask. I mean, there's something – it's not just tragic to see the demise of these Jewish communities. It's also um, – there's also just something so uh, embarrassing about – needing to imagine that they're going to have to start their Jewishness somewhere else, if that makes sense. Roman? I, I don't know if we should be embarrassed, right? I mean, uh, people who are attacking those cities should be embarrassed. And, uh, you know, uh, the Jewish community and the global Jewish community has done a tremendous job. And uh, the reason Kajeka was created, I think, is because an American Jewish community was operating in, frankly, a resettlement mode, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we give you freedom, we give you a job, we give you English as a second language course. Nobody goes hungry, everybody has an apartment. Uh, whereas the, you know, such things as Jewish identity and connection to the Jewish community were not completely ignored, but were approached in a very different way. It was a bit, I would say, paternalistic. You know, here we have an organized Jewish community, come and join. We got mm -hmm. you out. Come and join. We have everything set up, right? And uh, maybe it would have been better if it was on a more partner level where Russian Jews have as much to offer to the organized Jewish community as to learn, 
right? There are unique experiences among this community that no one else has. Uh, unique talents, unique creative people, unique creative minds that only now slowly, even considering being part of the Jewish community and say, hey, I have something to offer, not just to, you know, here's an English as a second language course and a food package. Right. So, I, but it always takes two to tango. Mm -hmm. So I'm always very careful, you know, not, not to point fingers and not to put blame on anyone why this didn't work as well as it could have. Um, Russian Jews are a tough community, you know, Russian speaking Jew. We, you know, we got to be careful with the terms these days. Eh? Uh, <laughs> so, Russian speaking Jews are a tough community to work with. Uh, we like to be, as we say, right, amongst your own. Right. So there's this warm, fuzzy feeling of being with people that are just like you. And it's not that we don't like somebody. That's not that we don't want to be part of a larger Jewish community. But there is something that we want to preserve. And, you know, when you are in your parents' home in uh, sweatpants and a sweatshirt and you can put your feet up on the couch, you know, there's this warm, fuzzy feeling that you can't replace. If I come to your home, of course, I'll, or you come to my home, of course, I'll be polite and courteous and well-behaved, but it's just not the same. But right? it's not the same. So, so uh, you know, uh, but I wouldn't pass blame or feel embarrassed for any of it. I want to, can I add to that too? I just want to remind ourselves on this one. It's so easy to think of the Jewish piece of this as somehow unique. So this isn't about anti-Semitism. I mean, it could be, and it could have been, but it isn't, right? This is about Ukraine and about Russia. And I, I say it because, um, you know, we're a subset now, and I think the Jews of Ukraine feel very much part of Ukraine and part of the Jewish diaspora. Again, going back to this book by Larry Tai, he said, talking about the Nippur's Trust, that it stirs the same mixed emotions in Jews who have lived there all their lives. To some, it's tortured history is all the reason they need to escape. Others, often in the same household, say that after all they've endured, it would be sad to abandon their birthplace, just as they taste their first freedom. Whether they see it as limiting or liberating, all agree that for them, history has been a defining experience. Nancy, I agree with you. It's, uh, you know, it's almost ironic how both sides use Nazi imagery and uh, your anti-Semitism to blame the other side. It's almost a competition, you know, who is less anti-Semitic and to portray the other side as Nazis, right? So uh, for us to hear a battle for Kiev or Kiev is being bombed, just, you know, just the language, you know? Right. Well, that's one of the most complicated pieces of this. Yes, there are ways in which talking about Jews and Jewishness are a parochial version of what is a global conflict between two countries. On the other hand... Putin himself describes this invasion as the denazification of Ukraine, right, for all sorts of complicated reasons that have to do with right-wing nationalism as being a fuel of Ukrainianism, right, and the land claims involved and trying to position himself as anti-imperial, even in the playing out of an imperial thing. But there it is again, right? There it is in the background, the language of Nazi. And, and it's almost impossible in a kind of yin-yang sense to hear Nazi and not hear Jew. So it's kind of inevitable that we as a Jewish community are not just thinking about this because we're Jews and therefore we talk about Jews, but because it kind of plays a role in this story in ways that I think are bigger than us. Right. And it's pretty ironic when uh, a Jew is called a Nazi. I mean, that, that has been like, bizarre. 
Great. So let's take a little bit of a different tack here because both of you work also in places in Jewish leadership with agency, with the real ability to do things. And I will say I've been encouraged by what has seemed to me a kind of wall-to-wall in the Jewish community mobilizing effort. There are obviously going to be different political opinions about certain aspects of this, but it's been pretty wall-to-wall in terms of opposing the Russian invasion and feeling a sense of responsibility to at least help support Ukrainian Jews, if not more. So what would you like that agenda to continue to look like? What are the more important pieces of what you think the Jewish community should be doing right now to respond to a crisis like this besides this, which is talking about it? I'll start with you, Nancy, and then I'll go to you, Roman. What do you, what do you want us to do? Well, I think what's been interesting about this is the numbers of people I'm hearing from who knew I've been involved over the years in Ukraine who never paid any attention, right? Uh, and, you know, Never paid any attention to the fact that you know, hundreds of thousands not only still live there. Oh, really? Jews still live there? Also, I would say, Roman, locally haven't paid a lot of attention to the wonderful people in our own midst who came from there and, you know, have just given back to this country in in huge ways. So I'd say wake up. (laughs) There's a wake Mm -hmm. up call here that's really important uh, about how how we do live in a bubble. Uh, We worry about Israel a lot. We talk about Israel a lot. When there's a crisis in the diaspora community in Argentina or in Paris or, you know, wherever is an anti-Semitic event, then we come alive. But, you know, what has been going on in Ukraine in the form of Soviet Union with the Jewish community is, is, you know, no matter what the final chapter is on this and whether this now drives people out, these 30 years should be seen as quite a miracle of the rebuilding of Jewish life. It is, to me, I have never felt my Judaism more deeply, not even when I go to Israel, than I did in Ukraine when I saw older men with gold teeth with their medals singing in a chorus at the synagogue or a woman singing about Yiddish mama or speaking it and hugging. It's a joy of living a Jewish life. And they Mm -hmm. have been joyful, right? People who came back into Judaism after an entire generation of not having it. And it's that joyfulness that was really contagious. We brought young adults there. We brought high school kids there. We brought, you know, all kinds of people who felt like, oh my God, I need to appreciate what I have in America as a Jew. I need to appreciate it. I need to celebrate it. It's a special thing. And look at what they're doing over there. Great. So the wake-up call is a big part of it. Let's Mm -hmm. learn about these Jewish communities. Let's take pride in it. Roma, what what would you push for right now? What do you want to see the Jewish community doing in response to this crisis? Well, now in the middle of the crisis, obviously, we have to help uh, Jewish communities there. There's no question about it. But several years before, I think I voiced this frustration a little bit in my response to a previous question. We have a Russian-speaking Jewish community right here in the United States And very often we are invisible. People don't know about us. People don't see us. We are about 20 to 25% of the Jewish community of New York City. People don't realize it. Every fourth or fifth Jew in the city of New York lives in a Russian-speaking Jewish household. You know, where are these people? Where are they in our institutions? Are they at our leadership table? Are they in our educational settings? Very little of that is happening. Again, you know, not to uh, put blame on anybody, you know, this community is very reluctant to come out and be part of the larger community as well. So I do think it's important you know, to notice Russian-speaking Jews in our JCCs, in our day schools, you know, if they are there, 
right? And to find the language to engage them in a much more meaningful dialogue. At the same time, you know, now in the time of crisis, I say, you know, who are we to complain? You know, we are in the United States, we are safe. Uh, Jewish community institutions are welcoming us with open arms, maybe on their own terms and maybe not in such a sensitive way, but, you know, stop quetching and, uh, you know, and do something for people who are really sitting in the subway at night and not sure. Right. We, you know, so, so things like that. Let me push though a little bit, Roman, which is uh, my instinct right now as a just as a Jew is, okay, where can I put my dollars? And so I'll find the support organizations like the JDC or, I don't know, ORT or there's Hatzalah in Ukraine. There are a bunch of Jewish organizations uh, through the federation systems, et cetera, that are basically doing humanitarian aid to help the Jewish communities either um, survive right now or, or escape. What would be something that could connect the dots between – direct support for Jews in the middle of crisis right now and what you're talking about, which is privileging the voices of Jews who are formerly from Ukraine. How might your Jewish communities right now and your organizations serve as a useful bridge for the rest of us, either to understand what's taking place or to actually be helpful in getting involved? Well, I would say, you know, just getting our voices heard, just the fact that you are inviting me today. I mean, it took a crisis in Ukraine, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, most people don't know who we are, what we do. There's a wide, rich Jewish art and culture and literature and things like that. It doesn't always have to be, I mean, now it is, but in, in hopefully soon in peaceful times, cultural, educational, social programs where people get to learn about this community, about its contribution to world Jewish culture. People don't realize, but Odessa is a birthplace of Hasidism. Mm -hmm. Odessa is a home of Chaim Nachman Bialik and Jabotinsky and Rachel, the poetess, and all of these things were born in Ukraine that, mm -hmm. uh, that people don't even realize. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, there was something in the air. There was something there that gave birth to all these wonderful movements, right? Mm. Some in response to tragedies, obviously, like Bogdan Milnitsky, right? Uh, but others in response to earning of Jewish people to have their homeland. And uh, you know, there is something there that should not be ignored, and it can enrich the entire Jewish community. So let me ask you one last question to both of you, uh, which is, you know, it takes moments like this to create a sense of peoplehood, and I feel very sad about that. I feel like my life's work has been to try to help the Jewish community believe in some notion of Jewish peoplehood that doesn't have to get created by crisis and anti-Semitism, that those things are shortcuts, but that we should believe in this because it actually creates a framework for us to see our mutual flourishing together. But this is going to fall apart fast, not only because it's a crisis and therefore a crisis by definition short-lived, but because we're watching already that this is becoming a partisan political story in America and that there are a lot of people who are going to start pretty soon recognizing that if they want to stay pro-Trump in America, they're going to have to change their narrative a little bit on Ukraine. And then what does that do to their sense of solidarity? So I guess I want to push a little bit for each of you to respond to what do we need to do to hold on to something that we might learn about Jewish peoplehood in a moment like this? How do we preserve some sense of collective responsibility that enables us to push against the forces that will inevitably try to push us apart from this? And Nancy, I'll start with I, you. I would say one word, democracy, democratic institutions supporting democracy. Jews have 
thrives only where they've been able and free to thrive, right? Where there's been a democratic, some better than others, you know, maybe in Poland right now we have some issues, but to see Hungary even condemning Russia, I mean, that is, it's so interesting. But I think that we need to be able to stand up and say that someone like a Putin, someone like a Hitler, someone who just has no moral compass is simply not good for the Jews. Not good for anyone, but certainly not good for the Jews. And I don't care, you know, again, where your political things are, is that we've got to be willing to stand up. I heard Mitt Romney on one of the programs earlier today, and we worked with him closely in Massachusetts, and boy, he really went after some of his colleagues on the Republican side in a way I had, you know, he's always been critical, but it was quite, quite vociferous. And I think we need to hear more of that. Mm -hmm. Roman? Uh, not to sound naive, but I think something really good will come out of it. I don't think, frankly, there is a way back for Ukraine. And I don't think there is a way back for Ukrainian Jewish community. I don't think there's a way back for American Jewish community in responding to that. So out of this absolute tragedy, you know, this should never, ever happen to any other community in the world. But out of this tragedy comes an opportunity to be a global Jewish community, to be a connected Jewish community, to be a caring Jewish community, to be sensitive to all the nuances and complexities of the situation. Not everything is this way or that way. It's complicated. And I think we should grow to appreciate the complexity of these issues and be okay with it. You know, it's not this one's fault or that one's fault. It's not Democrats or Republicans. It's not those who left and those who stayed. It's not secular or religious. We are one global Jewish community that has to learn to live with nuances and complexities. And the sooner we do it, the better for all of us and the richer and more vibrant and powerful our community will be. I'm grateful to both of you, and I obviously will conclude just by dedicating this to the people, our people standing in harm's way right now um, and praying for their safety um, as we watch this story, even as we talk about all of its implications, what it means for us, what it means for the world, for America, for the Jewish people. Uh, we just pray for their for their safety. Amen. But thanks to both of you, to Roman Schmulinson and to Nancy Kaufman for being on Identity Crisis this week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and Alex Dillon and edited by M. Lewis Gordon with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhavet Schwartz and music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website typically about a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas of what we should cover in future episodes and feedback about our show. If you'd like to suggest a topic or have comments on this episode or any other, you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can rate and review our show on iTunes to help more people find it, and you can subscribe to our show wherever podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening. Thank you.